following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, let's get into our sermon this morning, and we're starting a new series today on the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the greatest sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus, and it's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So that's where we're going to be, and we're going to be here for the next uh, several months, working through uh, the series little bit by bit through the sermon uh, and I want to encourage you uh, to do two things. One is to, to read it for yourself. Just read through Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 in your own time. And that will give you some familiarity with what Jesus is saying here. And uh, you'll be that much more aware of things when you come to these times. Secondly, if you're in a life group, uh, a lot of the life groups are going to be going through the series. And there's study sheets that go along with this. And you can grab those online. If you've got the church app, you can get it that way. Uh, you can get it on our website, or you can get a paper copy at the back of the room. So um, those are just interactive questions that will help to flesh out the application of what we talk about in these times. So you can get them for yourselves, or you can get them for your life groups. All right, we're going to dive straight in because we've got a lot to cover this morning. I want to just introduce this series briefly, and then we're going to get into the first couple of verses. So Matthew chapter 5, verses. we'll start just with verse 1 and 2. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, there's something in, this, in the first couple of verses here that I'd never seen before, before I started preparing this series. There's, you see in verse 1 there that distinction between the crowd and the disciples? You see that? So there's a crowd that's been following Jesus up to this point. There's a big crowd that has been really attracted to Jesus, and they love him because of what he can do for them. And they love him because of all of his miracles and his healings and his exorcisms and all of the things that keep the crowd happy. But you see here, Jesus, when he sees the crowds, it's almost like he withdraws from them. Then he goes up on the mountainside. And who is it that comes to him? His disciples. So as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, keep in mind, this is primarily spoken to the disciples. And so there's a challenge that hits us right up front here, that the Sermon on the Mount is about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. That's primarily what we're talking about, is what it means and what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And you need to ask yourself right at the beginning of the series, there's going to be some tough questions along the way. And here's the first one. Are you part of the crowd or are you a disciple? Just think about that right at the beginning of the whole thing. Are you part of the crowd and you're just here spectating and just on the, on the edges of things and on the periphery of following Jesus? Or are you and do you consider yourself truly a disciple of Jesus? Because that's who the Sermon on the Mount's for. It's about those and it's for those who want to be disciples. And maybe you're in the crowd, but you're thinking, well, I, I'm wondering if maybe I want to be a disciple. And that's good. This is for you too. If you've got that nudging and that prompting that maybe you're on the margins, but you are drawn to something and maybe you want to go deeper into following Jesus and really take up the invitation that he has given to follow me, he said, then this is for you. So that's the, that's the framing of this whole series. This is about what it looks like to be a, a, a genuine disciple of Jesus. Now, 
What we're going to do is, the first, as, as, you, as you start looking at the words of Jesus here, the first thing that we hit in Matthew 5 is what is called the Beatitudes. Some of you heard that word before, the Beatitudes. It's a Latin word, and it's, it's just the word for blessing. And that's how each of these phrases, these verses, through the next little section start. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. These are, these are blessings. And there's, there's eight of them, if you take the last two together. And we're going to take them in pairs as we go through, just to kind of set a bit more of a pace and just keep things moving here. So we're going to do two at a time, all right? And this morning, we're going to take the first two Beatitudes. And I, so here's, here's, the, here's fair warning this morning, okay? This, for the next 15 to 20 minutes, this is going to feel really uncomfortable. And we're going to struggle. And it's going to be hard to hear. And then there's going to be some good news. All right, we okay with that? Okay, so buckle up, people. Buckle up. Matthew 5, verses 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There is a, a cultural value in the West, fairly entrenched, I think, that people are basically good. Right, would, would you agree with that that, that, that is a, a value that we often hear, that we observe, and it comes through media in a whole range of ways, and we hear it from different people, that inherently human beings are basically good, and that if left to their own devices, we will most of the time choose the good over the bad, and, and inherently human nature is, is good and virtuous and moral and upright. Typically, in our Western culture, that's what people believe. Uh, most recently, I read this uh, in a piece on CNN, a journalist David Allen, he wrote this, we need to remind ourselves that people are generally good. We are hardwired for goodness. It's easier to recognize this fact when you think of children. Now, I don't know whose children he's talking about, <laughs> but I can tell you it's not my children. Because when I look at my children, I do not see this. I do not see this natural proclivity towards the good and the virtuous and the upright. I see a lot of self. I mean, I love my kids, right? I love my boys. But I, I see a lot of me first, a lot of, you know, not caring about what the other two are doing, a lot of they can't see past the end of their nose half the time. So when I look at my kids, I find it easier to believe in the doctrine of total depravity than I do in the doctrine of inherent goodness. Uh, but maybe that's just me. But I, I would suggest that these words really fly in the face of just practical evidence. And for sure, they fly in the face of what Jesus is talking about. This, this idea that we've inherited in the West, that people are basically good, it is just fundamentally at odds with Scripture and what Jesus says. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And to be poor in spirit, means to come to terms with your utter spiritual poverty before God. There it is up front. Uh, to come to terms with your poverty of soul. Not, not financial poverty, not just material poverty. It's deeper. A poverty of spirit. A poverty of soul before God. Uh, to illustrate, imagine that uh, you've got like a spiritual bank account. Before God, just like you've got your regular bank account, so imagine you've got a spiritual bank account before God. We all like to think that we've got a few bucks in that account, don't we? Do we all like to think that, you know, and you've probably got a few more than the person sitting next to you maybe? And I mean, look, you're here this morning. That's got to be worth a few, don't you think? You just turn up on a stormy morning. 
Surely that's going to give me a bit of credit in the old bank account before God. And the very fact that we think that means that we have not understood what it really means to be poor in spirit. In fact, I think Scripture would say it's worse than that. The very fact that we think we've got credit adds to our sin. That's the sin of self-righteousness. So then you could sort of say, okay, well, look, I'm prepared to admit I've got a zero balance before God. I'm willing to admit I've got no credit. I've got no money before him. I'm just, I have nothing. Even that is not good enough. I'm sorry it's such bad news this morning, but it's not like you've just got a zero balance before God. You are deep in the red, people. You are deep, deep, deep in debt. Like not even that little overdraft facility that you sometimes, a lot of the time, use, but mountains of debt. Okay, it's bad news. You are in spiritual debt up to and beyond your eyeballs. It is just an obscene amount, like think billions and billions, more than that. It's, you know, just so much debt, you can't even fathom it. Any hope that you possibly ever have of making a dent in it is gone. It is just an almost fanciful amount of debt. That is your spiritual condition before God. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Such bad news, but you've got to hear the bad news in order to hear the good news, right? Hear my heart in this, people. I'm not, I'm not trying to say this to condemn you, but this is truth and reality, and it's part of the gospel. So poor in spirit means that we're willing to acknowledge that we are in serious trouble, that we are in a desperate position before God. Here's how Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, puts it. The corruption of the heart of man is immoderate and boundless in its fury. It is like fire pent up by God's restraints, when as if it were let loose, it would set on fire the course of nature. And as the heart is now a sink of sin, so if sin was not restrained, it would immediately turn the soul into a fiery oven or a furnace of fire and brimstone. I mean, how different is that to people are basically good? This is so utterly countercultural. Our culture wants none of this. Secular culture wants none of this. Secular culture wants to tell you all day how amazing and how awesome you are. And yet scripture wants you to begin or at least come to a point where you can acknowledge your total and utter depravity before God. That means not just sin as you see it. I know that we could, most of us probably here who are Christians would say, yes, I'm a sinner. But you have to accept you only see a fraction of it. You see a drop in the ocean of what your sin really is before God. God sees the fullness of it. He sees the full hideousness and heinousness and filth of your sin. And while we will never fathom that, and we'll never be able to fully comprehend the weight of our sin, we need to acknowledge that our situation is far worse than we ever thought it was. And that we have treated sin way too casually and way too blasé in our life. So to be poor in spirit means to simply front up and own up to the fact that we are utterly, spiritually bankrupt before God. And then it gets worse, as if it possibly could. But you come to the second beatitude, and Jesus says this, Blessed are those who mourn. Now, mourning, in this sense, is not just being sad in general, but because of the first beatitude, it's got a very specific meaning. It means to mourn over our sin. So if poor in spirit means to acknowledge your sin, 
To be mourning means to feel the weight of your sin. And that's not comfortable. But this is actually what Jesus calls us to do. He says, I want you to feel it. I want you to feel the gravity of your sin. This is what David said when he prayed, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Can you hear the mourning in that? You read Psalm 51. That's David, by the way, after he's committed adultery and then committed murder and then covered up the murder. And he comes to God in this just place of utter brokenness and desperation. And he's just grieving his sin. And he feels its weight before God. And he is a broken man crying out to God for renewal. But he says, God, I've got a broken heart. I've got a broken spirit. I've got a contrite spirit. That is feeling our sin. That is mourning, as Jesus describes it. Or think about the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee that Jesus tells in Luke 18. He tells this parable where these two guys go up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee's praying away and he says, Thank you, God. Thank you that I'm not like all these people. Have you, have you, have you thought that sometimes? Come on. We all do. You know, thank you, God. I'm not like this person over here who's made a mess of their life. Thank you, God. I'm not like this person that's sitting across the row from me this morning in church. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I'm not like this person. Look at all their problems. Look at all their... Thank you, Lord Jesus. You've got me on the good path. You've got me on the right path. Thank you, Lord. Now, we can be like that. That's pharisaical. That's what Jesus is speaking against here. That's the Pharisee. And then the tax collector, he stands up to pray. And he says, Luke 18, verse 13, But the tax collector stood at a, at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can you hear the mourning that's going on there? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, I want to draw a really careful line here between mourning over sin and self-loathing. I know some of you are given to a bit of self-loathing at times. Some of you that have low self-esteem, and this is just an excuse to beat yourself up. And this is an excuse just to be down on yourself. And you already feel bad about yourself. And now you come here this morning and you feel 10 times worse. And this is just self-rejection and self-hatred and self-loathing. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, blessed are those who hate themselves, reject themselves, and despise themselves. It's not that. What this tax collector is doing is not hating himself. He's hating sin. He's hating the sin in his life. And he's recognizing that, that depravity before God. And he's allowing himself to feel that. But that doesn't mean that we reject ourselves and hate ourselves and just become totally self-despising people. That's not what it's about. You can absolutely still hold to that fundamental truth. You are loved and you are accepted and you are valued and still mourn over your sin. We have to do both. So this is not negative self-esteem time. This is something different. Mourning over sin. Genuinely taking the posture of that humble tax collector who didn't have an ounce of self-righteousness, but could just say, God, have mercy on me. I'm just a sinner. I'm just a broken, broken man. That's mourning over sin. And we don't often let ourselves feel the weight of our sin before God, but that's what Scripture calls us to do. And not just feeling the weight of our sin, but feeling the weight of the sin of the world. Is looking around us and getting a sense of the brokenness of the world. Do we care? 
All the effects of sin. I mean, sin corrupts not just our hearts, it corrupts our relationships, and then it ripples out to families and communities and nations and our world. Do we care? Do we feel it? Jeremiah wept over the city. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. When's the last time we wept over our city? When's the last time we wept over just the the brokenness that we see, not just in us, but around us? We look at what's going on in Turkey at the moment and Syria. Do we care? Do we feel it? Just another thing that we scroll past. But mourning means allowing ourselves to feel that, to feel it deep in our gut and feel the weight of it and recognize it for what it is, the brokenness of a fallen world, not just a humanitarian crisis. It is that, not just a natural disaster. It is that, but the brokenness of creation that's groaning and longing for its liberation, but is still in bondage to sin. That's the world that we're living in. That's the devastation that we're seeing. And that should affect us, shouldn't it? At a certain point, like this should affect us. I think we've probably got a whole lot of intellectual people in the room who come to church, you know, for the head. But Jesus said, I want your heart and I want you to feel some of this. It has to move from your head to your heart. We need to be moved by this. We need to allow the sinfulness of our world to affect us before we're ready to really receive what God has for us. And so this is where it starts. Interesting, isn't it? That this is the whole Sermon on the Mount starts here in this place of struggle and difficulty and discomfort. Being willing to own up to the fact that you are poor in spirit and being willing to mourn. And the reason for that, the reason that this is so important is because of the promises that then come behind us. That Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is what? The kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to to enter into the kingdom, that's to enter into relationship with God. That's to know God. That's to have eternal life. That's to receive salvation. But Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become poor in spirit. It's the precondition. You cannot get into the kingdom of heaven until you are willing to humble yourself and lower yourself and become poor in spirit. Why? Because until you recognize the serious of sin and its effects, you will never appreciate the grace of God. You just won't. Those two things are always going to be connected in your mind and in your heart. Your view of sin and your view of the cross. If you have a light, casual, blasé view of sin, and you feel right now that what I'm saying is over the top and too much and not what you came to church for and give me a break— You will come to the cross, and I guarantee you will treat lightly what Jesus has done for you. Because if sin is just this kind of little thing, then what Jesus has done is just this little thing. If sin is just a little misunderstanding over here, then what Jesus has done is just help to correct our understanding so we could improve ourselves. If sin is just a sake of we've just drifted off the path, then all the cross is doing is just bumping us back on the path. But if sin is nothing less than total spiritual death, then what Jesus brings is nothing less than resurrection. You can't hear the good news until you've heard the bad news. I don't enjoy preaching this stuff, but it's the gospel. And I I have come to believe that until you realize how deep the pit is that you are sinking in, you'll never Breathe the relief when you see the hand that reaches down to rescue you. 
until you wrestle with your sin before a holy God, you'll never truly appreciate the grace of God that comes down to rescue you. And we come to the cross and you see that on the cross, Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself. He's taken all of your sin and not just sin as you see it. This is really important. Jesus didn't just die for the sin that you see and that you're aware of. Yeah, you could name some things in your life. You could say, yeah, I know there's this thing and this thing and this thing. Jesus died for your sin as God sees it. He died for the fullness of it that the Father sees, past and present and future, in all of its absolute awfulness. Jesus died for that so that it could be removed from you as far as the east is from the west, and you could stand freely in the grace of God and be accepted by the Father. The reason that God accepts you is because he accepts Jesus. The reason that God places his favor upon you is because he's placed his favor upon Jesus. The reason that God receives you is because he's received Jesus, his son. And so Jesus has taken that mountain of debt, that you have that absolutely enormous debt that you've incurred before God. He's taken that. He's taken it all upon himself. He's absorbed all of that debt and he's paid for it with his own blood. And in return, he has given you his bank account. And he's given you all the riches of heaven poured out into your account. That's why Paul says every spiritual blessing is yours in Jesus Christ. You just imagine the bank account of Jesus before God just overflowing. And all of that is now yours. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of grace. Every spiritual blessing is ours. But again, you can't see it until you recognize your sinful condition before God. One always follows the other. There's a guy, uh, Robert Harris, not the coffee guy, but another guy who says this, thus God undoes a man before he saves him, mars him before he makes him, takes him all to pieces, and then joins him together again. That's what I'm saying. He says it better than I can. That's the picture I'm trying to paint to you. Before God puts your life back together again, he's going to take you apart. He will do if you let him. If your heart's open to God this morning, the first thing he's going to do is undo you and expose your sin. And it's uncomfortable and it's brutal, but I'm, I'm pleading with you to let him do that. It's a tough work and it's a hard work, but that's the first thing God's going to do in your life. He'll take you apart and he'll give you a, a fresh vision of your, your own sin and it'll take you to a tough place. But he does that with grace. He does that in order to put you back together again. He does that so that then he will take the broken pieces of your life, and then mend them and make them whole. But God will always break us before he makes us. And I want to encourage you, don't oppose the work of God in your life just because it's uncomfortable. Don't adopt some kind of self-help gospel that bypasses the bad news and only gives you the good news. If you do that, you will never, ever fully recognize what Jesus has done for you on the cross and just how deep that goes. Sherwood Wirt, who was an associate of Billy Graham, I think, he said it simply like this God cannot fill our cups with the water of life until they are drained of all other waters. And that's my challenge for you this morning, my friends. I hope that you can hear what I'm saying with love and, and with a soft heart because I'm saying it 
for the sake of, of understanding and receiving the grace of God. But God wants to pour into our hearts the living water of his spirit. He's longing to do that this morning, but he can't pour it into your life while your life is still contaminated with all of this other water. He's wanting to pour the water of his spirit into your life, but he can't do that while you're still holding on to all this other contaminated sludge. And so the invitation for us is to say, God, what's the contaminated water in my life that just needs to drain away? Maybe that metaphor is too close to home with all the flooding. But what is the contaminated water in my life, God, and in my heart that needs to fade away so that you can pour your living water into my heart? Maybe there's some area of sin in your life that you are treating too lightly. And I just ask you to think now and allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. Maybe is there some habit? Is there some addiction? Is there just something? And you're excusing it right now by just saying, well, that's just me. No, it's not just you. It's not who God's made you to be, and it's not who he's called you to be. And by treating that lightly, that's contaminated water in your life, and it's preventing God from pouring his spirit, the living water, afresh into your heart. Is there something? Maybe you're even only distantly aware of it, but let the Holy Spirit bring it to your mind now. If there's something happening, let the Holy Spirit do his work. Don't push it aside. Maybe it's just a little bit of that Pharisee in you. We've all got him. We all know him. And he crops up from time to time a little bit of that Pharisee who wants to just look down our nose a bit at other people. We'd never admit that we're doing this, of course. But there's a deep part of us that wants to be a little bit self-righteous, place ourselves over other people or criticize, be negative, be cynical towards others. That's contaminated water in your life. And that's not coming to terms with your own brokenness. And maybe it's just the general unwillingness to really face what we're talking about head on. Maybe it's uncomfortable for you this morning, I know. And, and you'd rather just skip past this and get to the next beatitude. But that too is contaminated water. An unwillingness to face up to the brokenness in our own heart. And so I can only invite you, I can't see into every heart that's here, but I invite you to allow God and just ask God, drain me of all other waters, God. Anything else, anything in my heart that is trying to prop me up on my own, anything else that is making me think I am even slightly deserving or earning of your love, anything else that's making me think I can make myself slightly more presentable to you by what I do, any area in which I'm treating lightly some sin in my life, God, just drain it away. God, take it, drain it, remove it so that he would fill you. Fill you afresh, and he will. It's what Jesus meant. Those who mourn, they will be comforted so that the comforting of the Spirit can come. And he pours into your life afresh his grace, his love, and his mercy, which is so rich and so deep. And you'll love it all the more, and you'll appreciate it all the more when you've known just how empty you are before God without it. There's an old hymn that says this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you feel that? Can you allow your heart to go there this morning, to that point? Without tipping over into self-rejection, but can you go there? And say, wash me, Savior, or I die. I've got nothing. I am nothing. Without you, Jesus, it's absolute and utter death. I have nothing. Jesus, I'm desperate. 
desperate for your grace. It is precisely in that point of desperation where God will meet you with his love and meet you with his acceptance and draw you to himself. But we've got to go to the hard place to receive his grace. I want to just give us a couple of minutes to enter into this. And before we come to the Lord's table, which we desperately need this morning, the grace of God, but just allow yourself for a couple of minutes just to feel the weight of your own sin before God. It might seem like a strange invitation, not something we usually talk about in church. But there's a time to rejoice and there's a time to mourn, the Bible says. And right now, this is a time to mourn. There's a place for it and there's a time for it. And I want to allow you and invite you sensitively, appropriately, to just feel something of the weightiness of your sin. And just ask God, God, would you just give us a fresh vision of sin, not to be condemned, but so that our eyes could be open to your grace, so that we could see the incredible rescue and salvation that has come through your hand. Are you willing to pray that? You're willing to go there? I want to lead us through this with a prayer. And you maybe want to make these words your own, just words that you can express to God or say your own words uh, if you like. But this will just lead us through this time, and let's just take a couple of minutes to let the Spirit do His work in our hearts to press these Beatitudes on our hearts, and then we're going to share communion together. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty. Thy glory in my valley. God, we pray these words with our hearts open and broken before you. And we just say with David, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. We have broken spirits here, God, and we ask 
that you would come and mend and restore. And as you've allowed us, God, in this moment to feel something of the weightiness and the ugliness of our sin, Jesus, would you now allow us to taste the sweetness of your grace? As we take these emblems, Jesus, would they be more beautiful and more precious and more valuable to us than they've ever been before? Because we see what a gift you are. And we, we see with new eyes what you have done, your body broken, your blood shed for me, for us, for our sin. We thank you, Jesus. Those words are not enough, but God, we are, we are just here before you, just undone and asking that you would now come and mend and restore us and heal us by your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.